This is the Scott Bradley Show podcast. Let's jump in though today because uh, there is there was a very significant. We, sometimes those of us on the outside of City Hall don't necessarily understand or follow all the positions of people in City Hall. So there's a lot of people. There's 6,500, 6,700 employees in the city, something like that. And we don't really know what all of them mean, and we don't really understand what all of them do necessarily, but there are some of them that their title and their position are incredibly relevant to the city of Hamilton, incredibly important to the city of Hamilton when you look at the long-term success and, and health of this city. Well, the head of Hamilton Economic Development, it doesn't take a lot to realize, yeah, that's one of those. Economic Development, that is that is a big key position, and there is a new person who has been put into that role. His name is Glenn Norton. He joins us now. Glenn, congratulations. Well, thank you very much, Scott. That is, uh, I, I assume for you, it was a choice of either running for mayor or taking this, and you decided to take this one. This one is considerably easier, believe me. I wouldn't want to be in politics. Those guys take a lot more uh, heat than any of us do in staff. It is a huge position, though. It really is, uh, I'm sure, even you know, as you look at it, it's a, it, this is a huge key position in any kind of city, but especially here. Yeah, it is a little bit intimidating. It's exciting, but it's also intimidating at the same time because of the scope of the job, the importance to everyone in the city. And it's a bit intimidating because I'm following in the shoes of a great leader, Neil Everson. Hard to um, hard to follow on that act, you know what I mean? But um, I've got the same great team under me that Neil built, so I'm very optimistic we'll continue the momentum that he started. Well, let's dive right into this, because we have a few minutes, and, and it, it is such an important topic that, uh, that I wanted to get right at this. And the other day on the show here, we were discussing um, the discussions that were happening at City Council, in which they pointed out that we should probably be, be prepping ourselves, bracing maybe for a larger tax increase than usual this year. And the discussions that came from that were, okay, we have a couple options here of how to deal with this. We can either really increase the prices, we can either we can either cut back on jobs, we can cut or we can raise taxes, we can find more money. We either have to cut back or increase revenues. That latter responsibility now falls to you. Do we have in this city right now the kind of potential to be able to generate significant new streams of revenue by bringing in new companies and new businesses here to help offset some of those increases? I certainly believe we do, Scott. We've got a lot of great opportunities. um, And the challenges that we face, interestingly enough, are ones that are facing all the uh, cities in Canada, in fact, North America, right? We're talking about a slowdown in the world economy, so it's not creating a lot of demand for new goods. We've just seen an election in the U.S. that has put in a president who is talking about protectionism and um, ripping up trade agreements and tariffs. And just those, those are international. They are facing everyone. The access to capital, ability to borrow, to grow your funds. That isn't uh, specific to Hamilton. That's specific to every business, particularly small business. So that's good to know. We're facing the same challenges. But look at the opportunities we have in terms of the workforce that Hamilton has. We've got an exceptional workforce that has a great work ethic and skills from that coming from obviously our larger employers, but also from the Mohawk programs, McMaster, the educational institutions. We've got some great locations um, in terms of the city uh, where we can put industry. Look at our waterfront. Look at the multimodal transportation network we've got with with ocean going. We've got rail. We've got 
air transport. We've got the highway systems. Uh, we've got inbound immigration. People are coming from other countries because they want to be here, and they're bringing with them their skills and capital. So I am always an optimist. I must admit that up front, but I'm feeling uh, pretty good that Hamilton's economy, which has been on the upswing for several years, is going to continue in that direction. Where do you see, now you mentioned a lot of different areas there, and, and I mean, obviously that's a, uh, that gives you a bit of a buffet to, to attack, but when you look at it, where is the, the strength in the, the real strength for Hamilton as far as the opportunities go? Where is our real biggest area that you see as potential for growth? Yep. So let me talk about sort of two things there, Scott. There's sort of a geographic potential that's opportunity, and then I'll talk about some of the sectors sure. that um, Hamilton is well positioned to sort of capitalize on in terms of a cluster of industries. So uh, geographically, what makes me excited right now is the potential to get back hundreds of acres of the land down on the uh, waterfront that was uh, previously part of the U.S. steel land. When that whole banker street gets wrapped up, I think there's going to be a lot of surplus land. That whoever ends up owning those assets is not going to need nearly what used to be there. And by the way, I used to be Stelco's banker, you know, 15 years ago. <laughs> I was there when they went bank up the first time. So I've had some experience in that. Um, the opportunity that we have is to use that land, which doesn't have a lot of... Um, restraints in terms of what's going on there. It's level, it's serviced, it's on the water. We can put on new industry down there, a lot of new industry, without a lot of additional investment. And we can do it in a way that isn't like what we've got. We don't have to do smokestack industry. You know, I think we've all heard enough about the air quality in Hamilton that we're probably um, not excited about more smokestacks. But there's lots of industry in advanced manufacturing, life sciences, um, food and agriculture that come off of um, our existing industries and that we can build upon. Pittsburgh did that. Yeah, Pittsburgh did, absolutely. And there's absolutely no reason we can't do that. So that's sort of the the geographical opportunity that gets me excited, reclaiming a lot of Hamilton's waterfront for Hamilton, right? Um, and, And providing access, again, through the public realm to the water to that end of the city, which has been cut off from its waterfront by industry doesn't have to be that way. We don't have to have all chain link fences and barbed wire. Um, there are ways to do industry that people can still go through it and get to the waterfront. So that was the first half of your question. The, the second part that I was mentioning was in terms of those industries where I think Hamilton is well positioned uh, to play, life sciences being one of the key ones. And a lot of that comes from our research capabilities and commercialization that's coming out of McMaster University. You've heard, uh, you know, in the last few months about IBM and their collaboration with Hamilton Health Sciences Center. That's happening because of our research capabilities and uh, the excellence that people see in us in that industry. So I think there's more of that to come. In, um, sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say, we, we, I don't want to uh, forget about the opportunity for us in tourism and the creative industries. A lot of the recent sort of buzz has been around people moving to Hamilton that are in the creative industries. And although they may be small companies, they're important, and they contribute not just to the jobs they bring, but they create to the quality of life for the rest of us, right? So um, it makes it a place we want to stay, and it makes it a place that other people want to come to. So maybe someone who is a first-rate researcher 
might choose Hamilton to come and do their work because of the quality of life here. And we have to remember that people do have that opportunity. They do have a global um, opportunity to move where they want to do their work when they're in demand. So many things you said there. So many, so many directions I want to go. Let's. So uh, we've got a few minutes here. Let's try and work through uh, a few of these things. Uh, we sure. talked about uh, going from steel. Everybody knows the history. You talk about the smokestack industries. We all know the story of Hamilton and steel, and we know now that Hamilton, not exclusively, but we have become very much, as you say, a a university, a medical, a research city now. We've moved towards that. In the modern economy, once upon a time, we were heavily, heavily, heavily reliant on steel to make our economy go. Is it dangerous now to build up one industry too strong, too heavily in a city? Do you have to be far more diversified? Or can you look at something like research and medicine and those things and say, yeah, well, you know what, there's never not going to be a market for those. So if we're going to go heavy in one, that's okay to be there. Yeah, excellent uh, point, Scott. And and let me just um, remind you, or maybe it's something you don't know, Hamilton currently, according to the Conference Board of Canada, has the most diversified economy in Canada. I did not know that. Okay, good. That is a huge uh, honor, and that is one of our absolute goals, and our top five goals is to keep that title. Sure, sounds like a great safety net. Economy. Yep, it is, it is. And so we're going to keep on building on our strengths, those that we've already got the um, the reputation for. I mentioned life sciences, but that's just one of our key sectors. So as one goes up, often another goes up with it, and that's the way we want to keep it going. We do have, within economic development, a specialist, a business development consultant, assigned to each of the key sectors that we've identified as being um, a place that we want to play in the economy. So we will build all of those, and we will stay diversified, and that's our safety net, as, as you called it. In a time of a downturn, if one industry's down, there's a really good likelihood that another industry is up. You, of course, would love to be coming in, anyone would, into this job while all the foundational industries are strong and you're just working to build up the other ones. But we always know that the ground is always shifting. So you still, we still have some challenges in some of the areas in this city. How do you develop a strategy when you've got your eye on building, but you also have to have your eye on salvaging or, or, you know, some of those more difficult challenges? Yeah, so um, I'm actually coming into this department as its head at a great time. Um, on December 7th, we will be presenting to council our five-year economic development action plan. So something we've been working on for a year now. So we had the benefit of, of Neil while he was uh, still there, uh, myself, my colleagues. We've all built this together and we're pretty comfortable that we've got a plan that we can work to. So, I mean, how many people coming in uh, new into a job have a roadmap for them pretty much the day they get there? I, I feel very lucky, very fortunate to have that uh, for me. And it's not just a roadmap. It's a roadmap that we built together. So that's going to be very, very helpful. You have alluded to the fact that this city has been growing and you have alluded also to the fact that one of the areas that we've done very well in seemingly is in the arts and in the creative industry. And you have come into this job, you were the head of urban renewal before this, for people who don't know. That was where you were from building up the downtown. That's correct. And I'm wondering when we look at the creative industry and the arts industry, and we're talking about generating revenues and generating tax dollars and keeping those things to keep the city healthy. Do those industries, do those businesses contribute much in the way of taxes? Or are they there for the betterment of 
society for the living capacity of the city, but a little art gallery or something else doesn't really do much. Do, does it, when those places come and set up, do they help us put some money in the bottom line? Absolutely, they do. And, and I think people make an assumption that they don't. Um, the creative people do, do pay taxes. They do buy and they do sell a product and they buy their goods and services. They often live here. They buy a home. They shop here. So um, I would never want to diminish the value of those creative industries. And I call them a two-for-one because, just as you said, they also um, create a quality of life that is desirable not just to us, those people who are living here, but others who want to come here and who have the ability to choose based on the quality of life and what they hear. So the buzz about... um, culture and creativity and music and art is helping us get people that would not have given Hamilton a second look um, at all. So, okay. Um, one other thing, and I've sort of, I've made a bunch of notes as you were talking here and I'm just moving through them because there, again, there were so many things you hit on. Uh, you talked about the fact that we are able now to compete with these other cities, but the other part of that means there are a lot of other cities that will be competing for the same businesses to attract them here. You talked about the elections down south with, yeah. um, you know, there is going to be, there is a ton of competition. If company A is looking to set up shop somewhere, there is not just Hamilton who is looking to open its doors and say, come and build a factory here or put a store here. Everybody wants them. So yeah. what do we do? What do we offer that we put out there and say, this is why you have to be in Hamilton? What is that reason? Right. And, and there's numerous. There is no one sort of silver bullet reason, ha-ha, here it is, you know, <laughs> move to Hamilton because of this. It's, it's a variety of factors. We don't uh, just say you get to have the future LRT? <laughs> no, we don't just say that. That's, <laughs> that is part of the mix. Let's just keep it in the mix. Um, but, you know, starting off the top, one of them is just our key location in the province, right? Situated where we are between Toronto and the U.S. border. We get the benefit of firms that have found Toronto is too expensive to operate or it's too cumbersome for the staff to commute to get to work or the things on trucks are taking too long to get out of the city. I mean, we've already seen distribution warehouses move from the outskirts of Toronto to here just because of the length of time that their trucks were sitting, not moving in traffic. So that's that's kind of one of the, um, uh, the first factors. If you look again, uh, and I mentioned earlier about the transportation network, it's not just the highways heading to the U.S., it's it's train, it's the port, the busiest port uh, in the Great Lakes on the Canadian side. That's pretty significant. We have an airport that is one of the higher airports in Canada for uh, freight volume. It can operate uh, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and not all airports have that. So... And we've, again, the highway infrastructure. So we've got some good infrastructure that we can say this is a good place if you want to be selling into or buying from Toronto or across the U.S. market. Then we've got this workforce that's been built up over the years in advanced manufacturing. They they learned their trade perhaps in Stelco, maybe in Mattel, some of the other companies, but they've added to those skills through the many apprenticeship programs at Mohawk, for instance, and they're here and ready to work, and they have a great work ethic. So not every city has the workforce that we have. So I don't want to ever underestimate the power of, of Hamiltonians in their own right. Um, you know, going beyond that, it uh, comes down to the city needing to be uh, working with the developers, with these investors. Uh, we have a very significant 
program at City Hall uh, called Open for Business, which is trying to uh, reduce the amount of red tape to speed up processes and get to yes sooner than we than we currently are. So that's got the attention of senior management uh, and council, uh, by all means. So that's something that we're doing that I think is going to be different than some other cities, and we're already seeing some of the payback on that. So I think we have a lot going for us. I think we have more opportunities than challenges. Let me put it that way. Again, you were uh, just in a minute or so left here. You were the uh, head of urban renewal before. What's the difference between head of urban renewal and economic development other than scope? Because it sounds like the philosophy and kind of what you're doing with those two jobs is going to be somewhat similar. Yeah, no, quite similar. And as you said, the big difference is is scope. Um, In my previous uh, role, my physical um, geographic scope was the downtowns, of which we have six, and we have 13 BIAs and the commercial corridors. Uh, now, with uh, as being the Director of Economic Development, it's the whole city, so it's a bigger scope, and it brings in more of the industrial uh, side of what the economy produces, as opposed to the downtowns, which tended to be office and retail and commercial. Uh, now I'll also have the industrial uh, under me, and there's a whole uh, specialized team under my colleague, uh, Norm Schlehan, that specializes in that industrial sector. As I let you go, if I'm correct, your uh, Twitter handle until now was at Glen Downtown. Does that change now? It, it's going to. <laughs> I'm trying to think of a new one, Scott. Have you got any suggestions? I'm thinking Glen Hamilton. I don't know. Any suggestions are welcome. There you go. You can uh, go at Glen Downtown. Go on Twitter and fire him a suggestion and let uh, let Glenn Norton know what his new Twitter handle should be if there's something clever. You know, clever, yeah, yeah. clever, not double clever. entendre. <laughs> yes, that's correct. Way to go. Well uh, done, Scott. Glenn Norton, the new head of economic development for the city of Hamilton. Glenn, uh, congratulations and good luck. We all hope you do well. Thank you for joining us tonight. My pleasure, Scott. Thank you. It is, uh, that, is a, that is a huge and hugely important job. I mean, think our city, we talked, remember, if you were listening last Friday when we had the brightest panel in Hamilton Radio in here, Brad Clark, Mike Fortune, we were sitting here talking, and Brad Clark in particular, we were talking about this huge tax increase that we are expecting. City Hall is prepping us, is preparing us that we're going to be hit with higher tax raises than usual. And the reason for that is all costs are going up. We have a massive infrastructure deficit in this city. We, we, we need to start paying for stuff. And there's only two ways then, if you've got a huge deficit, there's only two ways to, to deal with that. One is that you cut, you cut services, you cut staff, you close buildings, you do whatever you do to have to, that you have to do to shave it. That's what a household generally does, right? If your budget is, if you're going in debt, you cut something in your household budget. That's generally my, as a fiscal conservative, my view is, you know what, if I'm not making enough money, if I'm going into debt, I got to find some way. I can't just keep going into debt and into debt and into debt. I have to find something that I'm going to cut out of my life. It may be painful. It may hurt, but that's what you do. The second option, and, and remember with that first option, no politician has ever wanted to be the person, the politician who has to cut because when you cut, you anger voters. And when you anger voters, you get voted out of office And the person who beats you is the person who promises to give you everything, even though it's completely 
unbelievable and implausible. Show me the last election where somebody won by saying, yeah, I'm not giving you anything. And in fact, we're lopping everything off. It's never, they never, they never win. So the other option is you create new revenue streams. If you, if you're not willing to cut, you better find some new money. And that is where Glenn comes in now in his new position. If the reason city council has chosen him to be this guy is because they want him to find them new revenue streams, attract new business, find new business, find a way to get more companies to come here who will put tax dollars with their staff buying stuff and with them, their corporate dollars, to build up this city. Let's bring more money into the city. It's a huge, huge important job. If Glenn does well, think about this. This, this whittles, this trickles right down to you. If Glenn does well... Ultimately, this will mean less taxes you have to pay through your municipal taxes. If more corporate taxes and more people are being brought into the city who will pay taxes, so more revenue is pouring into City Hall, City Hall has to ding you less individually. So you better be rooting for Glenn to do a good job. That's all I'm saying. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. I was loath to get on this topic again this evening. I'll be honest with you. I was really not thinking I was going to jump in on this one. And yet every once in a while, something happens that I'm sorry, but it just makes you so crazy that you can't help but mention it. And I don't know if anyone else on the station, I don't know if Bill has talked about this. I don't know if Scott has talked about this. But I saw this story the other day. What, what, what day was it? November 28th. Yesterday. CBC is now asking for another $400 million a year in government funding. Another $400 million in government funding. On top of the $150 million a year that the Trudeau government already reinstated that had been sliced away by the Harper government, which brings us up to, I don't know, $1.3, $1.4 billion a year that our national government-funded broadcast network is now being paid. And I, I'm sorry. You can argue, and I'll, I'll accept it. You can say that I'm biased because I'm on a competing network right now or that I work for The Spectator and that we're in competition. And that's fine. I don't mind if you want to take that position. If you say that I'm coming at this from a biased position, fine, fine. But hear me out at least. And I and the lines are open, by the way, if someone wants to speak about the CBC. 905-645-3221 or star 9900. But we cannot, we cannot be paying over a well over a billion dollars for a public broadcaster in this country at a time when the finances everywhere are tough. That is so bloated, that is so over. It's like a whale carcass on a beach that's been heated by the sun and is about to explode. It's so bloated. When you look around at private media, whether it's TV, radio, newspaper, online, people are operating these days on a shoestring. They have small staffs. They have small budgets. They are working to do a good job with by having to work extra hard, by not having a lot of staff. And along comes the CBC and says, we need another $400 million to do what we do. In fact, the, the head of CBC, the head of CBC 
actually said last, just recently, that the $150 million that was reinstated by the federal liberals was not nearly enough because with the 1.5% increase in inflation every year, that would all be eroded immediately. How big is your staff? How bloated is your staff if you get $150 million extra and that will be gone by a 1.5% increase in inflation? Think about that. If you run a business and you add 1.5% to your salaries, to your benefits, to everything else, and you've been handed $150 million, how many staff are you paying now? What are you actually covering? This is outrageous now. This is, it's gotten to the point of being laughable now that we have a public broadcaster that apparently has an insatiable appetite for money, that there's no such thing as too much money. No matter how much money we pour at it, it will never be enough. Meanwhile, you have, and look, I do this in the, uh, this is, I do this on CHML. I do this show. But you got a guy like Bill Kelly. Let me use Bill Kelly or let me use Scott Thompson as an example because I think they're a great example. They're two guys who do terrific shows here at 900 CHML. Five days a week, Bill Kelly, for example, is in here by like 5 a.m. every day to go on the air at 9. He's doing four hours of prep before he even gets on the air. He has half of one producer to work with him and himself. He has a staff of one and a half. You go on to the CBC shows, I guarantee you that they're talking about 10, 12, 15, 16 people for a radio show. Don't even tell me about the TV shows. Don't even tell me about the TV shows. And Bill is somehow in the private sector supposed to be competing. And now CHML and Chorus, the parent company, is being told, we need to have more taxes. We need to pay more corporate taxes that will be directed to CBC so they can keep and have more bodies to compete against Bill and Scott and me during the night, but those guys during the day, so there can be more people on those shows so it can make it even more difficult for Bill and Scott to succeed by getting an audience. How, How insane is this that we live in a country now where apparently a public service truly believes that it is the only place that can deliver news to the populace. It's the only place that can do this job because otherwise you would look and you'd say, wait a second, CBC set up a shop in Hamilton a while back. That must mean that there was a desperate need for news because there was no coverage of Hamilton news here. There was no spectator that's been here for 170 years. There's no CHML that's been here for 80 years. There's no CHCH that's been here for 50 years or whatever it is, 60 years. What, 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 what exactly? So the CBC's mandate, and I'm sorry if I get fired up about this, but it drives me insane to think that we have people who, we have a, a public company, a public company that is saying it needs another $400 million a year just to get by. I'll tell you what, people have heard about Kelly Leach, the uh, conservative leadership candidate who today said, or in the last couple of days said that if she was to become prime minister that, or yeah, if she was to become prime minister that she would dis, dismantle the CBC. I'll tell you what I would do. I'd give them two choices. You're going to operate on $100 million a year, which is still wildly generous. And the way you're going to do that is if in fact your mandate, as you describe it, is that you are bringing the country together and you are taking the news to places that otherwise are ignored, 
There is no possible way you can defend having massive headquarters and offices in Toronto and Ottawa and Vancouver and Montreal and Edmonton and Calgary and all these places that have tons of media. Those places are fully covered. They don't need your help. Those places have been well covered by the established media who are already there. So all those offices, the Toronto office, the Montreal office, the Ottawa, maybe we keep one in Ottawa because it's the center of the government of this country. But all those bureaus, those are shutting down. And you know what you're going to do? You're going to, if in fact you truly believe what you're telling us, that you are the glue that holds this country together and that you are the only place that will tell the stories of the people in small towns, you're going to shut those main bureaus in the big cities down where there's plenty of media already covering it and you are going to set up one and two person outposts. You're going to go set up a little shop in Buffalo Narrows, Saskatchewan, way up in the boonies. And you're going to do some stories from up there and you're going to report from there. And people across the country can then hear what's happening in Buffalo Narrows and the surrounding area. You're going to set up a, a, a bureau in Attawapiskat and in a lot of other six, uh, na- uh, native Aboriginal communities. You're going to do the stuff you say you do and you're going to do it for an awful lot cheaper. Explain. I mean, again, I'm still waiting for the explanation for how it is that the broadcaster, and look, I, I don't, I don't, on its face, I don't have a problem with a public broadcaster. PBS puts on great stuff on the air. Even TVO does great stuff. BBC, you know, is an example that's often used. Not a great example of a private broadcaster, to be honest. They a, are a public broadcaster. Or, sorry, a public. They are a more bloated version they of are. the CBC. They are. I'm talking about the other two specifically. They do great things that other people don't do. The CBC is trying to do the stuff that already exists or that exists in, in, there is already that there. I come back to Hamilton. They put up an online CBC office in this city a few years ago. Why? What was the need here? That we were going to spend tax dollars. Were we underserviced in this city with the media? We had a TV station, a radio station, and a local newspaper that is well-established and been around, as I say, for 170 years. They could have taken that money and set up three small bureaus in small places in rural parts of this country where they would truly have filled the mandate to be covering this country from coast to coast in the places that are ignored. There was no need for it to be here. And again, if you're saying you're just concerned about the competition, well, you want to know something? Yes and no. That's not why I'm saying it. But yeah, it is unfair competition when there is no requirement for a CBC, for a public broadcaster to actually have to produce any kind of profits or have to do anything other than swallow up public money and continue to, with bloated staffs, put out content. That half the time, let's be honest, more than half the time, they do some good news stuff. I'm not disputing that fact. But when they start getting into the sitcom world and trying to write shows and stuff, let's be honest, 95% of it is absolute crap. That we are just pouring taxpayer money into the toilet to say, You're, this is supposed to be indicative of Canadian culture. No, it's not. It's crap. And isn't that the difference between the CBC and the BBC? Because basically, they are mo- the CBC is modeled on the BBC, which produces original content in droves over in Britain and is the number one network, uh, the number one TV network. And it's because they produce good stuff. 
because they produce quality content, and that's something that the CBC oh, doesn't see, do. But but Luke, Luke, we can't we can't make that argument because if that argument is supposed to be made, they'll need another seven hundred million dollars to. Act, oh, you want quality? No, but you see, you, you know, oh, you want quality. <laughs> well, now we got to have another seven hundred million. We got to get yeah. ourselves up to two billion dollars now in order to do quality. I didn't know you wanted quality. You I know, thought you just wanted shows. You know why the BBC can produce quality? Because their content makes money. They had for, I don't know how many years it would be, probably over a decade, the most successful television show in the world that produced millions in revenue for them on a, on a yearly basis because they would do two seasons of it per, se- per year. And that is the kind of content what are you that talking about? Top Gear, uh, their, their car show. And that is how they could produce other quality content and then continue to make more money and continue to produce more quality content. That's what the I understand what the CBC is trying to do by producing original stuff, and I they're have not heard good at it. That some of it is good, but at the same time, I wonder how much of it is. So I guess Republic of Doyle was one that people loved. How much did you love? The, did you think it was a great television show? And how much of it was this takes place in Newfoundland and has a bunch of Canadian cliches in it? The reality is that we have private sector business, media business, all across this country that are working on very little money to compete. And you have a public broadcaster that comes in with massively bloated staff, massively bloated salaries, massively bloated revenues coming from the taxpayers. If, if anyone is still confused about this, consider this as the, as the example. It would be as if the government of Canada set up a car repair garage and they put it next door to an existing garage. Except the difference is when you drive in to get your oil changed or to get your tires rotated or get your engine fixed, you go to the private sector garage and there is one person who works on your car and it takes two or three hours and he does his thing like everyone else and gets it done. You drive into the government funded garage that doesn't have to worry about bottom lines and there are 15 people working on your car. Well, which one do you think is going to survive? Which one do you think people may choose to go to? And I can't fathom how it is that a government is actively working to undermine private industry within its own company, within its own country. Because that's what's happening here. If you want to have a CBC that does the very things that it says that it's supposed to be doing, to tie the country together by speaking for people whose stories aren't told, there is no need then to have these massive headquarters in the major cities. Those cities' stories are being told just fine, thank you very much. We don't need hundreds of millions of dollars being spent at CBC places, headquarters and buildings in Toronto and Montreal and all those places like that. We need them to be in small little places in the outskirts that no one ever goes to. That, however, that, however, is not sexy. That, however, is not something that a lot of people want to do. When you sign up to go to the CBC or any other place, you do not want someone to tell you that you have to go work in a tiny little town in the middle of northern Ontario somewhere that is far, far, far away from anything. There's no glamour in that, but that's exactly the CBC's mandate. And we, so they're ignoring their mandate while telling us that's their mandate. And then saying, but in order to fulfill our mandate, 
We need way more money. It's it, it gets me crazy because again, I look at the people who work in this building as an example, and I'm a part timer here. I look at the people who work in this building and they work bloody hard. And there are people at CHCH who I know who work incredibly hard. And there's people at the Spectator who work incredibly hard. And they are going up against a massive corporation that is fat and that has bottomless revenue streams. And now they want more. It just doesn't make sense. And it infuriates me that the head of the CBC would actually have the gall to come forward and say that he... Now, his reason for doing it, he says, we want to get out of the advertising game because that will help all the other places. That will help the places that I'm just talking about, the private sector, if we don't have to get advertising dollars. Maybe, maybe, but just dumping more money into it imbalances the competition even further. And here's the other part to consider, just as I wrap this up before I have an aneurysm. Here's the other thing to consider. Do you think, while we all, all of us do, we all, myself included, all of us sometimes disagree with things we see in the media. We all do. But by and large, do you think that the media truly, the private media are doing a terrible job? Do you think that they are truly doing a terrible job? I'm not saying do you ever disagree with them. You may disagree with them a lot. But do you think that stuff is not being covered? Some stuff doesn't get covered. Of course, we nobody covers everything, not even the precious CBC. But the reality is the private sector media is doing a pretty darn good job considering what they are working with, and they are covering stuff by and large that needs to be covered. We don't need to have a company that is funded by the government with the sole purpose of crushing that private industry. We don't do it in almost any other industry in the country, and I don't understand why we need to do it here and why we need to now spend even more on it. And, and you just hit on, on the most important thing to me. And using your analogy of the garage, the way I see what you talked about off the top of the show with, this, with the people in this building who work really hard but are finding things to be constricted because of the monolith that is the CBC, it's if that garage, that the one that the CBC garage opened up beside, had a second location in a neighboring town that was, say... That didn't, one hour that down didn't the have road. a garage at that, all. That that was the only garage in that Fine. town. Fine. But, but there but so there again, these two garages are connected because the one garage with the fifteen employees to do everything is killing the little garage beside it. The one in the neighboring town is being killed as well. And unfortunately, that neighboring town doesn't have the huge garage that the people can just start going to. And that's what's happening, is that the CBC in these monolith markets is crushing all the competition or attempting to crush all the competition. And that is having a detrimental effect on the private companies that are in exactly. these smaller markets that the CBC is not in and is not serving. And we, we're not a small market, Hamilton. No, but again, let but- me... There is no real CBC, and they are trying to crush the other media organizations. But the example is, if you want to go to a small town in northern Ontario that has no, to use the example, that has no garage at all, those people don't have a place to get their car fixed, and you want to set up a garage there, knock yourself out. That's perfect. That's what you should be doing. That's exactly what you should be doing. You should be going where there isn't already something existing. That's what your mandate is. That's what your purpose is. Go set up 500 
are a thousand little garages in all the little towns around Ontario and the rest of the provinces and all up in northern Canada where no garage exists, where people can't get their car fixed. Again, I'm using a, a simile here or a metaphor. But there is no need to then set up the massive garages, right, as I say, right next door, so you end up clobbering everybody else unnecessarily. And then when you do that, say, oh, by the way, our garage isn't big enough. We need to make it even bigger. We need another $400 million to expand our garage. You know what? To go back to my point, Kelly Leach says she would dismantle the CBC if she became prime minister. I would give them two options. You are going to survive doing it the way we described by going, by dismantling the big centers and going to the small towns and covering the country the way it should. You will do that and you'll do it on $100 million. And if you say that you can't do it, well then too bad. It was nice while it lasted. But we can't afford this. We certainly can't afford to dump another $400 million. Think about that. Just as I close, they're wanting $400 million extra a year. In two years, two and a half years, they would be paying for a full LRT in the city of Hamilton. And that's not paying for the CBC. That's just the extra part they want on top. It's insane. Love to hear... For many of you out there, you, you may disagree with me. You may entirely disagree. You may be a huge fan of the CBC and you say you're nothing but biased. Fine, fine. Radley at 900CHML.com. Tell me that. Explain why, though. Explain why this idea makes sense. Because to me, it makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. It is a government agency whose sole purpose is to beat down, to crush private sector competition. We don't do that in other areas of this country. Not that I can think of. We do it here. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. Once upon a time back in, oh geez, what year were the San Jose Sharks brought into existence? 25 years ago now, almost, give or take. 92, 93, somewhere Yeah, we're getting there. there. The names that were considered, they had a contest. And there were all kinds of names proposed for the San Jose, what became the Sharks. Had things not gone quite right, you could have, if you were a Sharks fan, you could have been cheering for, I'm not making this up, the San Jose rubber puckies, (laughs) the San Jose screaming squids, the San Jose salty dogs, or the San Jose blades, all were in the serious consideration phase well, for this team. But the Blades was actually the closest, but you, because you, of you, gang affiliations, <laughs> they said, no, we probably shouldn't have things about like people getting stabbed named after our team. I'd like to add some more to the Sharks. Uh, the Sea Lions. Okay. The Redwoods. The Icebreakers. The Golden Skaters. And that, the, that, yeah, the that Fog. sounds too much like the, uh, <laughs> the Golden Seals from Once Upon a Time. The Fog would have been cool. Actually, or, I like that name, but how do you do the, a logo for the Fog? The Breeze. So, like, you know... Then you could talk about them being a stiff. Re- it would be a headline writer's dream when they win playoff series, but at the same time, a stupid name. So here's the thing: there are, you know, what the team names are that that made it. You know all the teams, what they're all called. But all of the teams, well, almost all the teams, all the modern teams, the more modern teams, had a variety of other names that could have been used. We could be talking about very different team names in sports. And many of them, you look back now and you say, how is it even possible that some owner, some president, some person in charge gave a tenth of a second of thought to using this name? But they did. Let me give you another one. 
one of now the most lucrative, the most valuable franchises in all of sports is the Dallas Cowboys. They are up there with the New York Yankees, with Manchester United, with the Toronto Maple Leafs. They are, the Dallas Cowboys are, I don't know, $2 billion now, something like that valued at. Would they still have been this valuable if they had been named the Dallas Steers? Because <laughs> that was one of the finalists. They were going to call them originally the Dallas Steers. And then Tex Schramm, who was the owner, had apparently, this is as the story goes, had a brainwave and said, wait a second, uh, wait a second, do we want to name ourselves after a castrated bull? <laughs> <laughs> might not have had the same impact as the Cowboys, which, you know, for a variety of reasons. Um, and he changed his mind and changed it from the Steers to the Cowboys. The rest is history. I I would argue, I would argue that was a very wise choice by Tex Schramm. Very wise Probably. choice. The, um, the Vancouver Grizzlies were almost the Vancouver Mounties. Now, see, I don't have a problem with that That wouldn't one as have much. been terrible. It would have been cheesy. It would have been very cheesy, and, and we would have had fans showing up at all the games with mounty hats and red... And it, and it would have made a little less sense when they moved to Memphis. A l- <laughs> but <laughs> but as we know from the NBA... The LA they Lakers. Don't, the LA Lakers and the Utah Jazz, they really don't care about the relevance of the name to the geographical area, so... Uh, the Kansas City Chiefs. Do you know what the Kansas City Chiefs were going to be called? The Kansas City Chiefs, before they became the Chiefs, which you can argue about whether that is a politically correct name anymore, they were going to be, and this name carries literally to me no intimidation. This sounds like the worst team name you could, the Kansas City Mules, a slow, docile, Eeyore-like grumpy. Well, I mean, I think that's. Okay. <laughs> the mule, you could not cheer for a team called the Mules. I, I think that, though, relates more to the time when the team would have been named. That that name falls more in line with the kind of names you saw in that era than than a modern one. You're right. A modern team could never call themselves the Mules. Well, but. a modern team could never call itself the Maple Leafs. First of all, it's not even grammatically correct. And second of all, who names themselves after a piece of foliage? No. Well, there's nothing intimidating about so a Maple Leaf. That is one of those names like, and this is gonna, I, I'm, I might, might get mugged when I go outside after the show for this, but it's one of the names like Tiger Cats that doesn't hold up when you look at it critically. It's either a tiger or a cat, They're, by the way. Now, they, I understand it was the combination exactly. of two teams. And, and with Maple Leafs, it's because of the unit that Consmite yes. served in in the war. Yes. So again, there are stories behind these team names, but the name themselves, and it, I didn't even think about it with the Tiger Cats until I met CFL fans of other teams. They're like, your team name is really stupid. And I was like, well, l- no, let me explain what it is. And they're like, okay, but the name's still really stupid. And, you know, it's by itself, it's it's not the greatest team name. The Minnesota Wild, the finalists, mm. were the Minnesota Northern Lights. I actually like that one, although, again, how do you do a good logo for that one? Well, I mean, it's not like Wild has a set logo. No, the White Bears, the Freeze, the Voyagers, and the Minnesota Blue Ox. Oh, Love that one because boy, that would have been a terrible team name. That, Although that their would logo the would have been their logo would have been as bad as the Mighty Ducks, like some sort of cartoon Paul no, Bunyan. That's come back around. I think the Mighty Ducks logo looks great. Uh, the Oakland Raiders almost. I mean, the Oakland Raiders. If ever a team now, its fan base, its philosophy, everything fits with the Raiders concept. A bunch mm. of hooligans who are roaring through town. 
that team, that that team, that name, that fan base, it all meshes perfectly. They almost were the Oakland Seniors. <laughs> <laughs> You, which again, almost certainly today would have had people sitting in the stands with long Mexican mustaches and, and, you know, the big, uh, sombreros and it would have been politically so incorrect that they would have been getting banned from stadiums from coast to coast. But, um, here, here's a weird one. The Orlando magic. Now, you know why they're called the magic, right? I used to. They're called the Orlando magic is because the magic kingdom. It's uh, a yes. magic team, You're and right. it's with it's Disney a, it's, World. It's, it's the another magic. one of the Disney names. Well, kind of. It's But that's what Orlando is best known for, is for Disney. They couldn't call it yeah. the Orlando Disney, yeah. so it's the Orlando Magic. Well, yeah. they were going to possibly be the Orlando Floridians, <laughs> the Orlando Juice, <laughs> the Orlando Orbits, the Orlando Astronauts, the Orlando Aquaman, the Orlando Sentinel newspaper, proposed, and it apparently almost made it, was the Orlando Sentinels. You know, that, that would, be would not have been a terrible team name. But Except it really, that you can't really name it after the paper. I'd love no. to have the Hamilton hockey team be the Hamilton <laughs> Spectators. <laughs> but it, well, you'll just have to settle for the trophy they're trying to get named after your, your uh, paper. But it really feels like in that one, the owner, I'm imagining they're doing this in an office tower with windows on all sides. And they went, look around. What do you see? That's where we'll come up with a team name. But you want to know what name was their finalist before they finally settled on Magic? They almost went with the Challengers. And Ooh. the idea behind <laughs> the Challenger was it was an it was a nod. It was a, a remembrance of the Challenger space shuttle disaster, which took off from Canaveral. Yeah, that's Canaveral. what it would have come across as. How bad would it have looked to name your team after an exploded space shuttle? Because even if you say it's our way of honoring them, it's going to look awful. New York Mets. The New York Mets gave their fans a choice of 10 team names to be finalists when they named them back in the 1961. The Avengers, the Bees, the Burros, the Continentals, the Jets, the Mets, the NYBS... Any team that's got BS in its name is not going to do well. Baseball something. I don't know. <laughs> uh, the Rebels, the Skyliners, and the Skyscrapers. The Mets, thankfully. And apparently this one, they went literally with whichever one got the most right in votes. Not of these usual ones where they say, go ahead and vote on it, and then the owner already has his name picked. This was well, apparently see, legit. The, the name worked perfectly because it allows New Yorkers of all stripes to love it. Because you can be the Mets if you're a middle, lower class, and if you're an upper class, you can call them the Metropolitans. This may be the worst one as far as what players would not have wanted to have on their uniform and what they would have looked like. <laughs> I'm sorry. The... The Florida Marlins, now the Miami Marlins. Wayne Heisenga. Already not good, I should point out. You know, Marlins is okay. One day I want to go deep sea fishing and catch a Marlin. Not terribly intimidating. Well, I suppose if you've ever got one on your line going deep sea fishing, a Marlin would be pretty intimidating. But nonetheless, they were, Marlins was not the first choice of, uh, of name for this. Wayne Heisenga, who owned Blockbuster, and who was the one who came up with it, originally was going to, and got talked out of it apparently, was going to call his team the Florida Flamingos. <laughs> <laughs> that would have been... Could you imagine a player... Pink uniforms. Pink uniforms with a kind of a... I mean, flamingos are interesting to look at, but I would never describe them as a bird of, you know, like a raptor-type bird, something you'd be intimidated by. It would just be, that would have been the worst team name in the history of team names. Uh, Colorado Rock, uh, Colorado Avalanche, pardon me. 
They were uh, the considerations, the Black Bears, the Outlaws, the Storm, the Wranglers, the Renegades, the Rapids, the Cougars. Nothing awful there. Uh, the Houston Texans football team, when they came back. Not a great name. No, but still better than the Apollos. A little. Uh, and how about your Toronto Raptors? Do you know what the finalists were? Now, you know why they're the Toronto Raptors. Again, uh, the Raptors were born the same time as Jurassic Park was the number one movie in the world. And every kid was into dinosaurs at that time. So they chose the Raptors because, you know, let's let's jump on board the whole Dinosaur Express here. And that's how we were robbed of having city unity in Toronto with all blue and white sports teams because the Huskies would have been the better choice. Uh, Although apparently uh, when Isaiah Thomas came up or whoever it was who came up with the Raptors, it beat out the more popular or at least a leading contender, which would have been so much worse, in fact, which would have been the Toronto Dragons. (laughs) We could have been cheering for the Toronto Dragons. Uh, Let me skip down here. The Portland Trailblazers, they were going to go with the Portland Pioneers. Nothing awful about that. You haven't gotten to my favorite ones yet. And we have to go back to the National How Hockey about, League. Well, hold on a second. Let me finish these last two, and then we'll go there. Right. The Atlanta Falcons of the NFL. And again, this is an NFL team. A football team. Big men crashing into each other, blowing each other's knees out, causing concussions. This is a, this is a man's sport. This is a sport <laughs> that's about violence and collisions and anger and rage. They were going to be called the Atlanta Peaches. <laughs> Which would have Ooh. been, uh, could you imagine there would be a, a contest between who's the worst name, the Peaches or the Flamingos? The Vibrance was another one. That's like Liberace owned the team. We're going to call ourselves the Vibrance, the Lancers. All of these are horrible names. The Confederates, the Firebirds, and the Thrashers. They already had the Thrashers. And uh, um, Miami, the Miami Heat, well, let's skip that one. Uh, what's the what's the other last worst one here? Uh Oh, the last one, the uh, Cleveland, there's so many. Oh, the Boston Celtics, the Boston Celtics, one of the all-time legendary teams. The name Celtics was chosen over, do you know what the finalist was, what the other name was? The Unicorns. (laughs) Well, that would have been great to see how they, to see how in a modern era you could make unicorns seem intimidating. I would have, I would pay to see that. 1946, the Celtics were chosen over the unicorns. Hmm. That is, that is bad. Anyway, you had two favorites. So, uh, it's back in the NHL and I feel like I should, I should give the owners names because it really gives some context to how they came up with these. Uh, Seymour Knox the third and Northrop Knox. Yes, the Buffalo Sabres. Very rich people. The Buffalo Sabres. Uh, the Sabres beat out the Buzzing Bees, Those the are... Flying Zeppelins, and the Mugwumps. The Mugwumps. Oh, that would have been pretty good. Uh, pretty ridiculous, but pretty good. Okay, we've got two minutes left here. These are names that actually exist in the NCAA. These are college teams for sports that exist in U.S. college sports. And i got to whip through some of these because there are some beauties here. The U- University of California Santa Cruz banana slugs. Oh, I do I love like the banana I do slugs. like the banana slugs. That is that is actually a pretty good name for a team, although it's uh, ridiculous. It's silly, but it's great. The Cordozo clerks. Mm-hmm. Again, I, I'm not. I don't look necessarily at someone who is a clerk as being an intimidating. <laughs> um, 
in in Africa, this is actually in Africa. It's not an NCAA team. There is it's from the Nigeria Premier League of Soccer, the Wiki Tourists of Vouchi. <laughs> well, I mean, you get, you get some silly names when you when you cross over on the other the, ends of the world. Back in the states, the Cairo Syrup Makers. <laughs> that's a pretty good one. I, I don't mind that one. The Tutopolis Wooden Shoes. That's a high school. The Wooden Shoes. Uh, there is the Frankfurt Hot Dogs, of course. Of course. The Victoria Salsa in British Columbia. The Scottsdale Community College Fighting Artichokes. That, <laughs> that, that, one, I, that one's that, a good one. <laughs> making them the Fighting Artichokes, I think, is, is what makes it. If you're just the Artichokes, nah, it's a dumb name, but you called yourself the Fighting Artichokes. Uh, there's a, in the Swiss Soccer League, there is a team name that actually sounds really dirty. Uh, the Young Boys Burn. Yeah, that one... <laughs> So, so many jokes because they end up playing in European competitions and then all the English fans get to see them and then that, then things get bad. There are so many more I could go through, but I'll just wrap it up with this one. The Rhode Island School of Design. Mm. Not what you would think would even have sports teams, quite honestly. I wouldn't think they would be competing. It would be a small little place. Um, their, team, <laughs> their team names um, for uh, hockey are the Nads. So when you cheer for them, they are, the, you yell, go Nads! But... And, and their uh, their basketball team um, is the balls, and I won't even tell you what their mascot looks like. <laughs> you, you know, though, as great as great as that would be to finish on, I think we've really neglected the worst team name in the world, which is well, they just won the Grey Cup. It's it's the Red Blacks, all in and capitals. It's, it's all in capitals. It's not just that they thought, what are our colors and. Well, we'll name them that, but it's the idea that we have to yell it every time we say it on the radio. Well, not only that, someone pointed out to me this week, or I heard this week, that you know w- when we're talking about team names like the Indians and the Braves and these that that are politically incorrect, that are potentially racist. Um, depending on how you want to read it, the Red Blacks could actually cover <laughs> two groups that you would say we probably shouldn't have this but anyway, i know it's not named for that reason it's named after the lumberjack jackets and all the rest but anyway so yes, call a, them a, the lumberjack jackets or the lumberjacks like seriously a thousand ways you could have gone with that and you decided i think we should name them the colors well it probably isn't the only one the scott radley show weeknights from seven to nine on am 900 am 900 chml